Welcome back to Touch Podcast. This is Ryan Clark. This is Nate Novero. And this is Shannon Etheridge. This is Season 2, Episode 8, and we are speaking with Bromley McClelligan about her book, Good Christian Sex, at the Just Sex Conference that was sponsored by the Alliance of Baptists and at the Baptist Beer Garden, which was sponsored by Eden Theological Seminary and the Carpenter Program at Vanderbilt Divinity School. This is part one of two. We had a fascinating and fun conversation that includes the pitfalls of getting a book on sex published by a Christian publisher, but took for granted at the event that our audience knew about the book. So halfway through it, I will break in with an additional interview I did with Brumley so that we can fill in the gaps about the content of her terrific book. Brumley, come right up. As everyone on in the Twitter, Twitter sphere has seen that and heard that I don't know how to pronounce your name. Bromley McClellan. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Bromley McClenigan. McClenigan. So it wasn't her first name that you were mispronouncing. Well, I think I did both, right? Because I was kind of doing a country Bromley instead of Bromley. I'll, I'll take it. It's okay. okay. So if in case you don't know, Bromley has written a really terrific book titled Good Christian Sex. How many of you have seen her book, Good Christian Sex? You should op- open up your uh, Amazon um, browser, your Amazon uh, app right now, and go ahead and order it. It is in uh, paperback. It'll be, so it'll be in your mailbox by the time you get home. It's a really terrific book. And, um, I want to say something about and I'll, okay, I'll let Shannon say um, <laughs> when Shannon got a hold of that book. Yeah, I, I want to say that I was a little starstruck when I heard that Bromley was going to be here speaking because um, after writing 22 books, it's rare, if, It's very rare that you pick up somebody else's book and think, oh, I wish I had written that book. That's happened to me twice in my life. One was Sex God by Rob Bell, and the other was Good Christian Sex by Bromley McClanagan. Did I get it? <laughs> it's really a phenomenal read, but I heard that... The, that your publisher didn't really know how to market this book and that you had some not-so-good experiences with media. I don't want to start out the interview with a, a sour note, but um, what was your experience with the media and their response to this? Well, so the subtitle of the book, I gave the book initially when I sold it this lovely, um, it was initially called Like Nitroglycerin, which is out of this Frederick Beekner quote, pastors love Frederick Buechner. Nobody else knows who Frederick Buechner is, but pastors love him. And, uh, and it's this line about how sex is like nitroglycerin. Uh, it can heal hearts or blow up bridges. So I thought that was great. It was this literary reference. And the publisher was like, no one is, no, you can't call it that. Um, so uh, so uh, they gave it this other title, Good Christian Sex. I just started a new job in a congregational setting when they gave it that title. I'm like, this is going to make me very popular here. But the subtitle is what gets me in trouble, and it is the the publisher um, wanted to differentiate it from sort of the million other Christian sex books. What makes you know what makes this one good? So so the subtitle is uh, now I'm like not even going to remember it. Uh, Why chastity isn't. The only, the only option. option, and other things the Bible says about sex. So that was the contentious part. Um, there are, and when I was in graduate school, there were like a, a lot of books uh, written by uh, youngish women 
living in urban type areas who had had sex before marriage. But generally speaking, that had happened before they became Christians or during an off time. And then they felt bad about it and recommitted and then were celibate. And that was great. And then maybe or not, they got married. Um, depending. Uh, and so my story was a little different. I grew up in the church and, uh, and like in the church building all the time in a parsonage, like preacher's kid. Um, and, uh, and that was fine. I liked it there and loved church and all the things. Um, and then I went to college and, um, had some boyfriends and, had some sex, and then I went to grad school, and I had some more sex, and then eventually I got married, and I never felt bad about it. Um, so that was a different story uh, than the ones that we're telling. Anyway, so so I was telling this story, and this was contentious to a lot of people because, as we know, women shouldn't like having sex, especially if they're having it with people who they're not married to. So, because that's how God likes it. And uh, so paradigm this was a different shifter. story. It was just a paradigm shifting <laughs> story. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, what um, so it was hard because uh, a friend of mine has said this. Um, it is hard, I think, for um, uh, progressive Christian books about sex is like uh, for a general audience is a different kind of market because there's the whole industry. Um, Linda was talking about the purity industry. Uh, um, so there's a whole industry of Christian books about sexuality, but there's not a whole lot of like um, progressive Christian books about sexuality. Um, even those that are there often come from a place of having started with a, a, a more conservative ethic that the folks are then moving out of, or their academic texts. Um, and so this was sort of a, a different kind of thing. Um, and so th- I think they really struggled with that. And, and, uh, and I think the other thing is um, progressive Christians, I think, more often are not likely to go to Christian bookstores or buy Christian books. They would rather just read whatever, you know, mm-hmm. some reasonable authority, you know, in the secular world is talking about. They don't care about what their pastor says. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so I think they had a hard time. So they, they marketed it a little bit to... Um, you know, they sent all the press releases to, to uh, Christian radio shows and, like, the Christian Post. And, you know, um, one, one lady on a gospel radio station yelled at me on, you know, on, on live radio. That was super cool. And um, <laughs> it's okay. The definition of a trailblazer yeah. <laughs> is the one who has all the arrows in their back. It, it really was a paradigm-shifting book. Uh, in light of the fact that 90% of people, of Christian people, have sex prior to marriage, I think that you gave women permission to not have regrets about that. Yeah. And that was very liberating I'm glad. for me and for many women. And I've recommended that book to so many people. So <laughs> Thank you. you. I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was struck in, it might be the first book with Christian in the title by a female author who was sort of confident and friendly and warm about her sex life. And it wasn't in, well, it wasn't a, a sort of purity-based book, right? It wasn't shaming. It, it and it wasn't shaming. You were just, you're just so open and honest and kind with your reader and kind to yourself. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, when you, it, I don't think that's common. Is was there any? 
for your editor, for the publishing, for them like saying like, let's get this book out. Was there any tension there with you just sort of being like, hey, I'm just a normal person and I like sex and some of it <laughs> happened before I got married. Why is this a big deal? Well, so That's I... A terrible question. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> the... Um... So, so I should say too, and this was part of the story. So, it, it, I initially had a contract with um, a denominational press, and uh, and they were, uh, and we, I wrote the book, and and I had to do actually like at the beginning of the sort of as they were starting to kind of get the sense that this was that what I had to say. I mean, after I signed the contract, like well into the writing process, but after they started to get a sense that maybe this was not the book they were anticipating somehow, um, they made me write like a whole list of like statements about things I believed. And like, I can't even tell you how church seriously I am. So like, anyway, I, 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 it should not have been a surprise at all. Um, and they were like, okay, that's great. But I finished the book and it went through an editing process and then they called me and they said, and I'm like waiting to hear the timeline and all the things. And they're like, actually, we're not going to publish it. Oh my so, um, so, uh, so, and that ended up being a great thing for me because um, one I got two advances when I sold it again <laughs> I mean it's like seven dollars but nevertheless it was very exciting and um, so uh, and, and it went then to Harper One which did not have the sort of um, uh, the the they're not accountable to a denomination so so I could kind of say the things that I needed to say um, and so that was that was helpful um, so yeah I mean it but I think the, um, so I, I've said this a lot, but, um, so pardon me, but when I was growing up, the, the sexuality education that we had were sort of guided by several things. Um, one, I got handed a very instructional, well-meaning book called Asking About Sex and Growing Up, I think, I think that's what it was called, and the, um, uh, and the illustrations were done by the same person who did the illustrations in the editions of like Ramona and Beezus that I had. So I was like, look at Howie going through puberty. Um, so, uh, so that was very instructional and well-meaning and lovely. Um, at some point, uh, I started picking up um, my beloved now deceased grandmother's trashy romance novels when we'd go to their lake house. Um, so I got introduced to good smut that way, um, which is a, is, which is super, uh, like, that is a great way, I feel like, to be introduced to sex, because, you know, it's not, it doesn't get the same, um, it's not dangerous in the same way as porn, it's not exploitative of any of the actors, because they're all made up, um, anyway, I would totally recommend trashy romance novels as a way to, um, and then, um, uh, so those sorts of things, um, and then, uh, but but sexuality in the church was really sort of twofold. One, it was like, create you know, sex is part of creation, so created good uh, and make good choices. Here are like some things, and and most of the scenarios in our uh, in our sex ed were were a little bit like, well, they tried to make good choices, but they ended up pregnant anyway, you know. Um, so I mean, there was a little bit of like, you know, but um, but overall it was pretty okay. But then the other thing was that it was very sort of justice. Oriented. It was in our um, in my conference. Um, the big question starting then was about um, was about inclusion of same sex couples, which of course is 
honestly still the pressing issue before the United Methodist Church because God help us. But, um, but there was never anything um, sort of, so as long, it wasn't shaming, but it also wasn't helpful. Um, I was telling you before we got it started that um, <laughs> my mother had very severe allergies, like always. <laughs> She's like, I'm allergic to Illinois. Um, and so, uh, and she just, she really didn't ever like to be touched, right? And she's not, like, that's not her love language, any, none of the things. Not a really physical person. She's awesome. I love her. She's my favorite. So, but, um, but not real touchy-feely. And so, uh, and she was sort of in charge of giving us the, like, good sexuality books and, like, come with questions, but then not really saying anything. And so her sort of main guidelines to us were, like, you don't have to let them touch you. And there was nothing there for me now with, like, five years of trashy romance novels under my belt about, literally, no, uh, about what, uh, sorry, about what, what might uh, be some criteria if, in fact, I did want them to touch me. So, anyway, so, um, so it, it felt important to me. And then as I got older and started having relationships, some of which were more loving than others, um, some of which were more just physical than friendship than, like, romantic or lasting. Um, I started to see uh, that there were, that there was, in fact, a thing, there was such a thing as sexual sin. I wanted to talk about uh, what sexual sin was, and I wanted to differentiate it from everything. Uh, like, so, so um, my, one of my favorite parts of, um, of my of this book uh, is uh, there's a section, so it's very memoir-based, um, and this is just a side note. People are like, how was it like, because for the, the first publisher, they wanted like releases from anybody that I talked about, even though they're not named. So I had to like find, I mean, I do not have like a plethora of ex-boyfriends or anything, but like I had to find everybody and be like, I wrote a book. <laughs> Could you read this and sign off? <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, so this, which is fine, you know, it was fine. But, um, but people are like, how was that? And I'm like, well, listen, the great thing about that is there are no stories. I mean, there are stories about my husband, but overall, everything in the book is past. So, so, um, so that's one of the critical distance. How do you write about this stuff? It's all like, <laughs> oh, such a long time ago, so long. I have so many more children now. So we're back with Romley McClinigan. Yeah, look at you. <laughs> and her book, Good Christian Sex. We had a great time at the Just Sex Conference at the Baptist Beer Garden interviewing Romley. And uh, we got so excited and chased so many rabbits, we, we sort of forgot to actually talk about the content of the book. So, Romley, thank you so much for uh, getting back with us and being again on Touch Podcast. I'm delighted to say a little bit more with you, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, good Christian sex, why chastity isn't the only option, and other things the Bible says about sex. Because our listeners weren't at the conference, can you tell us about what what your book is about and why you wrote it? So, uh, this book, I felt like, was a book that I wanted to have when I was a young adult um, who was dating, falling in love, um, but also, uh, you know, becoming a more intentional adult Christian. Um, I went to college and grad school, and um, even though I grew up in the church, that was a time when I sort of 
really wanted all the parts of my life to start to fit together. Um, I think I grew up with a very um, secular sexual ethics um, that came both from a public health standpoint and also from, um, you know, whatever I picked up on network television. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so I wanted something that would help me to think about um, my romantic and sexual life in terms of my faith, because I didn't really have that. And a lot of the things that were available uh, at the time were either, didn't, didn't meet my needs, right? They were either for married folks or they were for folks who were not even remotely sexually active. Um, and the faith stuff basically seemed to be saying, uh, don't have sex. Um, I came of age, I graduated from high school in 97, right? Which I am pretty sure is the year that I kissed dating goodbye was published. So I, I am kind of the tail end of, um, uh, that start of, of the purity movement. But, um, uh, but anyway, so I, so what I wanted wasn't there, what I needed wasn't there. And, um, and, and what I started reading, even as I picked up some of those books, uh, when I was a young adult, didn't ring true to my experience at all. Um, which was that falling in love and exploring your sexuality is like a wonderful and fun and exciting thing. And, um, and while it can also be, there's also a lot of hurt. I, you know, I like broke up with people and I got dumped and, you know, stuff like that is hard to bear. Um, also the decisions and the heart hurts and the heartache and, and the joys, none of those were sort of as clear cut as, um, as a lot of Christian writing seemed to make it. And so I kind of wanted to like make, you know, draw a fuller picture for people. Um, and, and explore things a little bit in more complicated ways. Bromley, thank you. And to that, you, there's a line in your book, um, in the uh, Playing Fair chapter, where you say that, you know, the Christian life is less about protecting ourselves from being profaned and more about learning to risk ourselves in love. And it, and it sounds like a lot of, yeah, and I'm about at your generation, I'm a little bit older, but everything on sexuality in under a Christian brand would be about protecting us from having to to protect us from having any sort of connection with another person that might run the risk of us getting hurt physically or emotionally or you know otherwise. Right. And um and I <laughs> so the playing fair is sort of the sexual ethics chapter, right? Because I think um I wanted to start with the assumption that people are going to live their lives, <laughs> people are going to live their lives and, um, and that we may need some tools and guidelines on how to do that. And, and again, right, there's this assumption that you can kind of not live, that you can protect yourself until you will then be protected in marriage. Um, and, and that seems not just an impossible thing, and we're seeing that even more now. I mean, I kind of allude to it a little bit in the book, but since the publication of the book, I hear so many times from folks who either are in their late 30s and are still single and just found that the, the, the theology that they were offered 
to guide their sexuality in their teens is not working 20 years later. Um, or folks who married, you know, who followed things uh, as they were sort of told to do, and, and they had no idea how to be married. Um, so, so I, so one, I think that that sense of protecting yourself until somehow you're protected by something else, it doesn't teach you any of the skills that you need for having a mature, healthy, faithful relationship. Um, but also I think that's just not the call of the gospel. And, and two more things about that. One, um, so I studied alongside theology. I studied um, some public policy stuff, which included some adolescent development stuff. And so, so one of the things that, uh, you know, healthy adolescents need to learn to do is to manage increasing independence, increasing risk. Uh, you know, they have to take on greater responsibilities. This is part of the developmental work of becoming an adult for human people, right? Um, and not just regarding sexuality, but regarding a whole host of things. You know, I have an 11 year old and she is increasingly responsible for keeping track of her own homework assignments and for walking herself to the, you know, tea shop with her little friends and crossing streets by herself. I mean, like these are things that people have to learn to do uh, over time. And and I think the same thing is true in our emotional lives, you know, and that's not to say that I recommend at all that people sort of like go out and just, you know, <laughs> pull out all the stops and exercise their independence in all sorts of, you know, um, sexually fueled ways, you know, starting when they're very young. I mean, but, but that we have to learn gradually and over time how to take bigger and bigger risks with our our hearts and our our independence and um and and not that um that they will ever be i mean there are risks not because you know we're all called to be you know martyrs for sexual expression but but because you never really know i mean it's it's just as much um it's about venturing into the unknown. And, and I think actually that's really fundamental to how we practice our faith. I don't know if Baptists talk about faith as trust all that often. Do you, is that language that you would use? Yeah. I, yes. Um, um, but generally, um, you know, the more evangelical side of Baptist life, it would be um, around the time of deciding to follow Jesus, like trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior kind of. So there's a lot more emphasis on, on it in terms of conversion. Um, uh, but, you know, no, I think you hear, you know, you just have to trust. You just have to trust the Lord. I mean, yeah, there's, that's definitely a, a big thread. So we talk about, I mean, I really used to always hate the idea of like taking a leap of faith because, um, because one, I'm like pretty much a risk assessing, like <laughs> play it safe, intellectual, I want to know the argument for something, you know, um, but, but the, the first time and, and because too, I grew up in, um, you know, I was baptized as an infant. Um, my faith sort of unfolded in, in gradual ways over time. I wouldn't say I was ever converted to Christianity. Um, the, uh, 
so I never really liked that expression, leap of faith, until honestly, I like stood up and took my marital vows. And I was like, oh, that's what this is. Because I have no idea how this is going to go. And yet I'm promising to do it and to like try, you know? And so, um, and, and to some extent, I feel like in that way, like that kind, like that's, that, I mean, that was a holy moment and experience to me. And I think that um, I'm not convinced that those are one-time things, right? Like I think that over and over again in, you know, you could use language of sanctification, right? Like part of becoming more faithful and becoming more holy is like learning how to trust that things could be good and holy, you know? And, and so, um, so that's part of where I was coming from in that ethics chapter. Um, and there's a whole lot of kind of parameters that help us to make healthy, holy risk, risking in love decisions. Um, in our romantic and sexual relationships. Uh, but, but I think that it's, that the norm is more about reaching out in love than like protecting something. One of the things that I think um, some people are surprised about this book is that you don't express embarrassment about your sex life before marriage. And, um, and I realize that expectation is encoded. Encoded in that expectation is this idea that women should not want to have sex. And you mentioned this in the, um, you talked about this a bit in at the Baptist Beer Garden, but I wondered if you'd be willing to um, say more about how uh, people have, since the book coming out, how that has um how people have come to you about your lack of shame. You're so shameless with your sex. So shameless. Um, I mean, it, do, it, it certainly helps me personally that like, you know, I present as a like cis, married, hetero, white woman, right? Like I am all kinds of protected by my privilege. Um, so that gives me um, some and the dominant sort of cultural narrative in my part of the country is not purity culture, shame filled uh -huh. sex stuff. I mean, there's the stuff that kind of every American carries with them, but, <laughs> but for the most part, I've been pretty inured. Um, and so that's nice. I think people know that sexuality can be wonderful. And I think if their experiences of it have not been that way, they want to, they feel grief about that and they want to know how they can, you know, live through their grief and find healing. Um, and so I've been really moved by, by the responses I've had to this book as, as being um, someone without a lot of shame about, uh, about the things that honestly, I think are, um, I mean, statistically, right? Like most Americans have sex before they get married. Yes. Like my, we, uh, we have kids and, um, they, uh, and my husband is a teacher and recently we got a math test back 
for one of our daughters and pretty much everybody in the class got this one question wrong. And the teacher, our daughter's teacher marked it wrong, both on our daughter's paper and like everybody's. And, uh, and my husband, Josh said, you know, <laughs> as a teacher, when everybody gets it wrong, I start to wonder if maybe I didn't ask the question the right way. <laughs> so if we have this standard that no one, uh -huh. even like faithful, wonderful people who like want to do right by God and their neighbor, you know, when everybody is failing to hit this mark, maybe it's time to reevaluate the mark, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, so I don't have a lot of shame around that. Mm -hmm. And and I really do feel like it's important to help folks to do that reevaluating of the mark and to say, and again, not to say that like, let's all, you know, abuse ourselves and others, um, you know, to great hedonistic ends, but, but to say maybe there's some different norms here that we should explore. Um, and it's been really powerful. It's really empowering to like see people who are happier. Um, and I think too, for uh, not all, not always women, but but often women, um, empowered to to evaluate their relationships and see if they are in fact um, life giving and holy. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I it's sad that in America that our default is shame, mm -hmm. um, because it is entirely unhelpful. Like there's nothing, there might be a micron of short-term gain, gain involved in shame, but I mean, it's, it's just a seedbed of dysfunction um, now and forever if, if shame is your default. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think, I mean, I, I feel like I mentioned these books, Virgin Nation by Sarah Mosliner. Have you read? that um it, it's this wonderful it's like this real dense sort of academic history but it's short you know i mean it's not like it's not impossible to get through um but she talks about kind of the history of the purity movement and asking kind of what's at stake there because to some extent i mean the the christian sex ed and actually the secular sex that i got was in many ways too also very fear-based but it was basically like you don't want to get pregnant and you don't want to get disease. You oh. know, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we're pretty much out of the initial like AIDS scare, you know, when I was coming of age, but, but there was still a sense that like you did not want an STI, um, or to get AIDS. Um, and, uh, and so there was this fear there. Um, but, but as there bears out over time, uh, you know, shaming people is not is not even if an effective like deterrent for you know or or reduction of uh um in the spread of infection or even the spread of you know unmarried pregnancy right mm -hmm. i mean like if you mm -hmm. want people to make good sexual decisions you equip them to make good sexual decisions you don't just scare the shit out of them. Oh, i'm sorry you know <laughs> right? like you can say shit it's well, and that's yeah, as it is for all areas, other areas of our life, like the more educated and uh, experienced 
you can be the better in an area, the bit more the better decisions you're gonna make, right? You're not gonna you're gonna be like, oh, I know all about that. That's not where I want to go. There's here, there's this other path, and I know a lot about this path too. And this is this is a this is a good way. For, this is a good path for me. I think the other thing that um, as a woman that I both, I mean, it's easy to see why women would uh, chafe against the sort of um, both the gender norms and the the theological assumptions of um, about what women are like, you know, uh, I mean, there is this whole lot like women clearly would never want to have sex, you know, you would never feel desire. And it's like, well, that is not true. <laughs> that is just not true. Um, but, uh, and, and I, um, so, so that's, so it's easy to see why women would chafe against sort of those expectations. Um, and one brought up in like a relatively feminist household would be like, no, I'm just as smart as dudes. Like I can make the same kinds of decisions. You know, I am not going to be manipulated by. Um, but at the same time, it's also, I mean, I also really, you know, as a as a straight woman, I really kind of resented the way that men were characterized too. Like I fell in love with wonderful young men who were gracious and kind and, you know, funny. And, you know, I mean, like they were wonderful people. And the idea that like men were just these sort of animals who only want, you know, who only want to use you for one thing is like, that's, I don't know, that's a terrible vision for the world. Well, and that's the, yeah, exactly. And that's the presupposition. If a woman has to protect herself, that's only because all of, all of us men must be these horny savages who will date rape you uh, at any opportunity. Yeah. We, yeah. It's a disservice. Yeah. To men and women. Yeah. Everybody loses. Everybody loses in patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, and, and you offer, you offer some really beautiful words about how lovely sex um, can be and how it's uh, grounded in intimacy um, with another person and, um, um, and even talk about, and one of the things you talk about in your book is about how, how bad hookup culture sex can be just because they don't, <laughs> because, and I'll say young people, but how people, you know, just end up having a lot of bad sex, like in college, because they're not, there are, there are, some significant deeper connections that should occur and can occur uh, with another person. And you mentioned, you used the phrase sacred sex. And so I wondered if you would be willing to, um, you know, for our listeners talk about what, what makes sex sacred. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's interesting. So I, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm at this writer's workshop and as conversations with me often go eventually, you know, over some wine last night, we got to talking about sex and, uh, and, <laughs> and one woman, oh, it always happens. I'm like super fun at parties. Um, but, uh, the, but someone was saying, you know, we were, we were swapping books, you know, all these married ladies in their, you know, various stages of life we're talking about books around marital sex and and there are several distinct kinds of books right um and some of them are about uh social science and some of them are like 
out of the marital counseling sort of psychoanalytic um esther perel was mentioned with great awe and wonder and um because she's awesome um but then there's also the sort of like how to you know like how to spice up your married sex life and i'm not interested in that like there's a diversity of desires and uh um and practices and what works for one person will not work for them maybe tomorrow or will not work for another person so so i'm far less interested in saying um <laughs> you know gentlemen your job is to uh but but i think that like holy sacred sex in it, it involves just this involves risking yourself in love i mean i find that because I have been with my partner for a wholly long time now, like I am far more saying, like if I want to try something new, right? Even if it seems like embarrassing or I like have never put words to this before, like that's fully in that to be able for me to like be able to make that offering. I mean, he can say these things to me too. And, and to know that it will be received in love and and maybe excitement, um, you know, I mean, that that's unusual, special. Um, and, and so I think that's part of what can make something sacred, right? But, but like when we offer our confession in prayer, we are naming our true selves, right? And we are naming our longings and we are naming our fears and we are naming these things. And then when we come to either the waters of baptism or to, you know, the gospel meal, we're like offered a, a welcome and we're received as we are in, in the hope that we'll be changed together. Right. And, and I think that's, I mean, like, you know, when sex is sacred, like that's something that happens too, right? Like we bring our fullest, truest selves, honestly, and, 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 you know, we experience something beautiful and hopefully fun together, you know? Um, and so I think, I mean, I think that's a way that sex can be sacred and it doesn't involve, you know, costumes or toys, although, hey, you know, that can be fun too. But like, but, but that sense of, of rendering yourself vulnerable is, is I think, um, you know, I had a, fr <laughs> a friend of mine said to me, who grew up Catholic, uh, said to me, uh, sort of as, I don't know when, if the book had already come out or what, but he's like, so if everything things okay like doesn't that kind of ruin it right like isn't the taboo kind of the fun the fun of it right like knowing you're doing something dirty and shameful um and uh and i would like to contend that you can still have fun uh even if we have said <laughs> even if it's not in the back seat of a car um, right even if you're not gonna get caught or yeah right I'm hitting pause right there for now. Next week, we'll hear the rest of our interview with Bromley and discuss the many issues that arise when women aren't ashamed of their sexual desire. Thanks for listening to Touch Podcast. You can find us at touchpodcast.com, watch videos, listen to audio, and find other extras about our podcast. You can find us on social media at touch underscore cast. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
We'd love to get to know you. Send us an email with a message or a question at info at touchpodcast.com. You may hear your question or story on our show. Also, we have a little site on Patreon, patreon.com slash touchpodcast, where if you love this show and like to support and hear it forever and ever and ever, you can support us financially with a small gift, 2 to $3 a month is all we're asking. Don't go there now if you're driving, but if you go to our website, touchpodcast.com, you can find a link there uh, where you can support this webcast. Thank you for listening. We love our listeners. This has been Touch Podcast. I'm Nate Navarro. This is Ryan Clark. And I am Shannon Etheridge, and we love you for listening.